Welcome back to Jumping Around, a podcast about American steeplechase racing. It's January, and all anyone really wants to think about is getting warm. Opening day is two months away, and the horses are just starting to get back to work. Around the National Steeplechase Association, the work is in full swing. The spring condition book came out recently, the horses in training list grows by the day, and southern race meets eye their to-do lists in earnest. It all gets started March 24th at Aiken, South Carolina. Spring season promises to be a bit different with the expansion of the Carolina Cup card to include an early season grade one target March 31st, plus a newly organized Georgia steeplechase, the usual slate of classy timber races, and another strong card at the Iroquois in May. Bill Gallo, the NSA Director of Racing, sat down to discuss the coming season, the race for the 2017 Steeplechase Eclipse Award, and a little bit of history over his 40 years with the company. All right, we're here with uh, Bill Gallo with National Steeplechase Association, and uh, we're on the verge of crowning a new steeplechase champion, and that's as good a place as any to start. I've uh, got three really good candidates, and have you ever had a year where it seemed like it was you had three this deserving and where nobody really knew who was going to get it? No, I, I really can't remember, certainly not in recent history. This is... Uh this is a tough call. It's going to be an interesting. Uh, I'm I'm anxious to see who gets it, and it, and I wouldn't be surprised by any of the three. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's it's funny. They're all deserving in their own way. They all had great years, and uh, maybe we'll just start at the go. Let's go alphabetical, so we're not playing favorites. All the way, Jose from Jonathan Shepherd's barn. Uh, typical Shepherd pattern, homebred, kind of looked like a very good horse as a four-year-old. Lost his way a little bit, and then came back and had a great year last year. He did. He certainly had the, you know, the longest year. He went all year, spring, summer, and fall, which that, that in itself is an accomplishment for our horses, particularly the better horses. Uh, typically, they'll go spring or fall or, you know, two of the three seasons, but very rarely do you see him go all the way. It's interesting, I just said all the way, but he, all the way, Jose went all the way all year long, but he had seven starts, which is pretty good, and two wins of second and three-thirds, so very consistent, sort of peaked at the end. His last two were really, really good efforts. The Belmont race was terrific on the front end with Nagel. And then uh, just, uh, it just I was looking at that video this morning. When they come around the bend, I was look, looking at some video we're going to show at the, our awards dinner. And uh, when they come around the bend there, he, he flinched a little bit. He was going to the inside on that inside track at Far Hills. I'm convinced of it. He juked and uh, it, that definitely cost him something. He, he only got beat ahead. So I'm not saying he would have won the race, but it, to me, it was a significant moment in the race. But he's a quality horse. And at first glance, when I was trying to assess this, I sort of dismissed him. The longer I look at him, the more convinced that he's a legitimate candidate for sure. Yeah, and you can't argue with the progression he had. You touched on it, the race at Far Hills. But, I mean, every race he ran got a little better and um, started out in the ratings and handicap level, worked his way up. The race at the race at Saratoga and the Turf Riders was good. The race at Belmont was better. The race at Far Hills, um, you know, he ran a winning race. He just got beat um, by uh, Mr. Hot Stuff and Moldham in a three-way photo where you wouldn't disparage any horse's effort in that race. So uh, it's fun to see. And... Um, do you? We don't know the horse that well, but to see a horse come back—I mean, there were last year you wouldn't have predicted this by any means. Yeah, I don't know all the ins and outs. I believe he had a wind operation. Uh, I think he might have had a wind operation that that went awry, and then and I think they corrected it. I don't, you probably know more about that than, than I do, but I, I've heard that discussion. But he seems like he's healthy now, and he can certainly breathe a lot better. Uh, and I think that that shows in his most recent three. 
Yeah, definitely. And uh, owned by Buttonwood Farm, trained by John and Shepard, the master, which is funny to see, to be sitting here talking about an, another possible Eclipse Award winner for a guy who won one in the 70s. Uh, and uh, um, fantastic horse. It'll be fun to see him come back in 2018. Again, you couldn't, to me, you could vote for him or the other two and be perfectly confident in your opinion that they're going to get it. So it'll be fun to see how the votes all turn out. Next was uh, Mr. Hot Stuff, who won the Grand National Far Hills. And his year was the opposite. It was not very consistent. It was uh, he rose to the occasion that day. His races early on were not that good, and people know him. He ran the Kentucky Derby, races for Jack Fisher now, and is a very popular horse. So that doesn't necessarily mean anything with this. But what's it like to see a horse like that for steeplechasing to come back and do as well as he did toward the end of the year? Well, he's a first of all, you know, he's a beautiful horse or a handsome horse, I guess I should say. He's, he's certainly the best looking horse in, probably in our game. One, if not the, the stablemate Moscato is a pretty handsome dude himself. But Mr. Hot Stuff has always been kind of lived up to his name. He's uh, he walks around the barn. I remember you wrote an article, I think, once about him in Saratoga. I mean, he literally stops people walking when he's walking through the barn area at Saratoga or wherever he is. But he's. He's a magnificent-looking horse. I mean, obviously, he's, he's got some issues. He's got some health issues, whatever those are. I mean, I'm assuming they're leg issues, but he, it seems like he runs every two years. He has these long breaks, and it kind of looked like he was just uh, had lost interest this year and, until he just, you know, performs at the highest level, peaks on the perfect day, and just, just ran a cracker race. I mean, once again, I was just looking at it. At one point, I wasn't sure if any of them were going to get up. It almost looked like they're all three were going to lose or all three were going to win. I don't, I couldn't figure it out. But he's a quality horse who's, who's had a long career over jumps. And uh, once he made that transition from the flat, and the only thing you'd ask is his age. He's, a, he's the oldest of them at 11 years old and uh, 12 now. Um, he is in training. I, I saw Fisher's horse in training list. But by the way, all the way, Jose is in training as well, I, I believe. Uh, certainly, Jose is pointing to the Colonial Cup in the spring at Camden. I'm not sure what Hot Stuff's path is, but I know he's in training. Yeah, which is fun. I mean, uh, again, to see him come back. A horse like that with his following on the flat. I mean, he, he ran for Windstar Farm. He, he People remember him. And um, he was, again, you got to go back and look. He was in the Kentucky Derby with Mind That Bird, which is amazing to me. What does that do for steeplechasing to have a horse like that convert the way he did? Well, you know, you talk about the Eclipse Awards, and, you know, we are this tiny little sliver of thoroughbred racing, and, and quite often even the th thoroughbred industry people aren't aware that our horses are thoroughbreds, number one. That uh, You know, we, we like to say we have, th we have thoroughbreds that jump, which is true. But he's, he's a, a horse that's that community, particularly in Kentucky or in Florida where the Eclipse Awards are, they, they can relate to a horse like this. They say, wow, that, you know, that was, that was one we had. And, uh, you know, having run in the Kentucky Derby, it's a nice little attachment, obviously a rarity for a jumper. But it connects us with the thoroughbred game, which is something we're constantly trying to do. Yeah, no, fun horse. He's, uh, for those that don't know the whole story, he's a full brother to Sire Colonel John. Uh, he was uh, third in the Santa Anita Derby. And he was basically purchased, kind of lost his way on the flat. He was purchased to be a jumper by Nick Arundel first. And then um, when Mr. Arundel passed away, Jill Johnston bought him. And uh, he's had a great career over jumps. He's won 460 some thousand dollars won a couple of great ones and would be a deserving Eclipse Award winner, And as would any of the three. And next on the list is Scorpiancer, whose season was brilliant. It was just too short. I mean, he ran... Um, he won the Temple Guatemi in April, came back and won the Iroquois in May, and uh, then went to the sidelines with an injury. It would have been fun to see him turn the corner at Far Hills with those other three. Well, if you're going to talk about him, you, you know, the one thing you have to say, he's the best horse. 
he's the highest rated in the ratings. He's the highest handicapped horse. If you look at the weight he carried in, in, in the uh, Temple Gothmi, which was a handicap, you know, he carried a high weight there at 158. As far as weight carrying ability, or if, if we, um, as a handicapper, I, you know, if you ask me who's the best of the three, he's the best of the three. There's no question in my mind, which would give him some sort of an edge to some people. And that's the interesting thing about the Eclipse Awards. There's no, there's no prerequisite. There's no guidelines to follow. You can pick the horse that had the best year. You can pick the horse that you think is the best horse. And if we narrowed it down to that, I'd say Scorpion is the best horse because of his um, handicap rating. But he didn't necessarily have the best year. As you said, it was an abbreviated year. And that's probably going to work against him. But you know, once again, it's, I don't know how, as you know, Joe, that there's a lot of abstentions in this particular Eclipse Awards. We don't like that. I think you wrote a column about it for people to pay attention. And we'd like for the, the voting group to pay attention. But I think they're, for, what is it, 40, 44 typical abstentions, somewhere in the 40 range, which is a lot. I mean, for any other category, it might be five or six. Uh, so some people just don't want to deal with it. They don't think they have the capacity. So th some of those are l literally people that think that we're a separate breed. But I would say that they should vote, obviously, but I, I don't know how they're going to vote. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, again, yeah, the abstentions, I think, affect our the final votes for sure. I get where some people some people do it. I mean, some people abstain from the apprentice category or abstain from owner just because they don't feel qualified for it. I think that's that's fine if that's the way you feel. You don't want anybody to abstain because it's too confusing. You want them to look at it, study it, get as much input as they can, and make a decision like they would in any other category. And uh, my point in the column I wrote was there's no wrong answer. I mean, among those three, you couldn't, there's no wrong answer. Pick one. And um, whether it's the horse you think had the best year, the horse who was the best horse, the horse who won the most money, whatever your criteria is. And it's no different than uh, a horse who wins the Breeders' Cup Classic at the end of the year versus a horse who had a good spring, you know. So uh, it'll be fun to see. And um, the Eclipse Awards are Thursday night, and uh, we'll see what the totals uh, come back. And, and uh, Steeplechasing gets to crown a new champion. Again, any of the three would be great choices. And the most fun thing is hopefully we get to see a few of them come back and run 2018, 2019. You know, the, the, there was there was actually a fourth horse, and you and I had talked about it, and, and uh, other people. I, uh, Steve Bick talked to me about it a couple of times. Modem. I mean, what an incredible year he had. I mean, uh, Steve asked me on the radio show one day about Modem, and he clearly was a highly regarded regarded horse. He, he ran four times in U.S. all Grade Ones, and he was second each time, and just beat a nose in the uh, Far Hills race. So if, if they could extend it to four, he probably would have been one of the four. He probably would have been, if he you know, actually would win an Eclipse Award based on his past year, he, it would have had to be the only horse ever to win an Eclipse Award, <laughs> theoretically, without a win. But he's deserving of this discussion for sure. Yeah, he ran the four best races. I, I feel bad for him. Uh, hopefully he doesn't know. Hopefully he thinks he won. Um, but if he won any of those four, he would be the Eclipse Award winner, I think. Uh, just based on the best year and consistency because he ran the four best races. I, and that's why I brought him up. Yeah, because no, it was a fun horse. He was probably within a nose winning an Eclipse Award. Yeah, any which way. Yeah, if he wins, I mean, he's got, got beat a nose at Far Hills. If he wins that, we're not even, you're not mm -hmm. talking about the other three. He's the, he would be the hands-down champion, which is, uh, again, part of the game, you know, and uh, fun to watch. Hopefully we get to see them come back and take a shot in the Colonial Cup or the Iroquois and uh, have this discussion again by the end of uh, 2018. Speaking of 2018, you guys in the office have been planning and putting out a condition book and everything else. And so there's no racing in December, January, February. But what's the what's the NSA office doing? And, and uh, what do you think about the season coming up? 
Well, what we do is plan. And the planning part is, is almost more difficult than the execution part, quite frankly. And we've been very busy over the winter. There's been some radical changes. The main one is that you just mentioned the Colonial Cup. The Colonial Cup was not run last fall. It has been moved to the spring as part of the Carolina Cup card. It's really exciting news. John Cushman's in charge down there, and he's doing a terrific job. He's changing everything, and he's developed a whole new racing card. We're really excited about it. So with that in mind, I had made a promise to him to get the spring condition book out earlier than ever. It's a month and a half early. It was out before Christmas, somewhere in mid-December, which is unheard of. But I'm happy we did it because it gave horsemen a jump start, uh, at least thinking about the upcoming season. I think it stimulated some positive thoughts and some excitement. I hope we've been getting some horses and training lists from, from trainers as we speak. And they're coming in, and I see people are looking at the early portion of the season. You just mentioned two races, the Colonial Cup and the, and the Iroquois. And the Iroquois was kind of a standalone grade one there. Now you have a $150,000 Colonial Cup followed by the Iroquois. The spacing is terrific. So it makes good, solid sense to get started a little bit earlier. Uh, this Certainly this cold weather didn't help. That little cold snap there was, was brutal for training. I do hear of some outfits heading down south, perhaps the Camden or Aiken, which would help. But I'm encouraged by the changes in the spring condition book. We have a brand new meet, the Georgia Steeplechase, formerly the Atlanta Steeplechase. It's going to run at Kingston Downs, the same site, which is a wonderful race course. Uh, but they moved their date. They got off the Middleburg date. They went to an earlier date. And uh, the first four weeks of the, of the season, each meet runs unopposed. That's a real positive thing. So I, I like the, the schedule. The purses are really good. And, of course, the biggest change is that grade one addition to the Carolina Cup. So it's, uh, I'm encouraged, I'm pleased. And uh, getting back to your original question, that's what we do during the winter. We plan for what's coming up. Yeah, there's plenty, plenty of organizing to do. And, and yeah, I'm with you. I think getting the schedule and the, well, the schedule's out, but getting the condition book out has got to make people a little more aware of how to make a plan with a horse and try to get places. And the, the Colonial Cup, while it was a blow last year and seemed like a big gap, we could have used it to try to settle that Eclipse Award debate. It does create a little better spring for those top-level horses. Yeah, and the other good news is we've got some other changes. Some of these, um, you know, we haven't even announced yet, but uh, we've got a, a race chairman's meeting on this Thursday in Baltimore, and uh, we've got a board meeting the following day, and we've got some exciting news about the fall where a couple of meets have shifted around. If you look at the spring condition book, you say, well, first thing you say, where's High Hope? Oh, we lost High Hope. No, we didn't lose High Hope. Well, High Hope is moving to the fall at the uh, horse park, uh, same venue, different date, I think a better date, better for them, better for us, quite frankly. They're under new management there, and I'm hopeful that, you know, it flourishes, and I, I think it will in the fall. That's an important move. The other really important move, and we're pinning down on the details, but there's a possibility that the try-on races, the try-on fall races, will be run on the Colonial Cup day, which would be the equivalent day is Saturday, November 17, either Saturday or Sunday. Final decision hasn't been made yet, but they're looking to close out our season would be a really good thing to do. Fill that gap, that void. We need something big at the end, and they would plug in a, a comparable race card to their spring card. They race in the spring at their new course they introduced last year. That's the Tryon Blockhouse races, and, and they run for 150000 So we're, we're going to plug in on another $150,000 meet at the end at Tryon tryout falls. So that's more good news. I'm really big on scheduling. It's difficult. As you know, the NSA is a sanctioning body and, you know, we certainly sanction and grant dates. We don't dictate though. We don't tell them when to run, but we try and encourage them. And I, right now, I think the spacing throughout the spring and 
the fall is much better than it's been in many, many years. Yeah, which only helps the product. And and we whether at each individual individual race meet, it doesn't always seem like it's part of a circuit. But from the people playing the game, it's obviously a circuit. And the more we can make that user friendly for horses and horsemen, the better it all works. So uh, yeah, that's exciting. That'd be fun to see. High hopes to meet in Kentucky. And yeah, they were kind of squeezed in the spring. And I think it'll be interesting to see how they're received in the fall. And and um, steeplechasing kind of can use some fall meets. So yeah, they're going to kick off the the schedule September twenty third which will be a week before Shawan. Foxfield actually moved off their traditional date. They're going to move uh, first Saturday in October. So we unscrambled some things, and hopefully we'll benefit from it. And, you know, the key is to stretch the season out. I mean, you just can't run the horses every week like they used to in the old days. Uh, the horsemen like three or four weeks between races in our, our fall season. It's a shortened season, and we're trying to elongate it. It's not that simple, though, uh, but we sure try real hard to do that. Yeah, definitely. And um, shift gears a little more. Um, Steeplechasing lost a member of the family uh, in Charlie Colgan, who was uh, your boss at the NSA for years and uh, worked there from, I had to look it up, started in 1971 and uh, and was uh, there a better part of 40 years. And you always look back at people's careers or lives. And I, I know we've had a big Im- impact in yours and a big impact in the game. And, you know, what do you think about when you hear that? Charlie was a was a great guy. He hired me in 1977. I started on March 15th, the Ides of March in 1977, and he interviewed me at the Lantern Diner in, uh, on Long Island. I'll, I'll never forget it. But he he changed not that he changed my life, but he had a uh, the, the racetrack changed my life. He brought me onto the racetrack. I came from a sports family in New York. I was on the gambling side. I enjoyed gambling as a as a young person. And uh, I looked at racing from that perspective. And uh, it changed everything when I came to work at Belmont Park. Our office in 1977 was on the backside. It's the chaplain's office wow. nowadays. But we were right there in the barn area. I'll never forget the first time I ever went to Belmont Park through Gate 6 and literally off of Hempstead Turnpike. And I, I was going on my job interview with Charlie Colgan. And um, I drove in there and directly in front of Gate 6, as you enter the barn area, is, is the Phipps barn. And I saw it with the cherry and black webbings and I, it literally the trees and everything. And I, I drove straight there and I made a left and a right and a left. And I was at the racing office. But uh, I'll, I'll never forget that moment. And I it literally I fell in love with the racetrack that that moment. It's sort of like a, a sappy little story, but it's a true story. And um, Charlie was the person that introduced me to that that world. We had a great run. We worked together for, he didn't actually work for the NSA for 40 years because he followed the NSA and he moved over to the foundation, the National Sleep Chase Foundation for a few years. And then he went on to the Fairhill International for a good 10 year stint. So he was there, uh, I don't know, probably 30 years. But anyway, he, he and I worked together for 23 years. And um, the other element in that group was, was Bill Pape. Uh, and those are flourishing years. I've told many people this story, you know, or board members, whoever is interested. But from 1980, if you look at the former yearbooks or, or older yearbooks, you'll see from 1980 to 1990, the NSA had its greatest spurt of growth. We had, I think there was a million-dollar purse structure, total purse structure in 80. By 1990, it was $4 million. So we quadrupled the purse structure. We jointly, together, was Charlie Colgan was certainly the executive director, and he was in charge. Bill Pape was the president for many, many years, and it was uh, the president, executive secretary, and, and I was, at, at that point, the assistant racing secretary to Charlie and then became the racing secretary and then, then the director of racing. But I'm very proud of those 23 years that I worked with Charlie and, and you know, have a lot to thank him for. It was just a, it was a great, great run. 
I was very sad to hear about his passing. I was shocked, but I was flooded with really good memories, and I had a wonderful conversation with Bill Pape about some of those memories, and uh, he's a person that I'll never forget. Yeah, and and the the game exploding like that must have been... Uh, it must have been exciting, but I'm sure a challenge as well. And I know from talking to him and you back years ago, you know, the places you went, like Rolling Rock and and just the Dueling Grounds race and, and uh, just the moments that you saw through or saw the sport through, basically. And people today don't always get it. But uh, I, I know Rolling Rock would have been a favorite place and certainly one of Charlie's favorite places. And you got a Charlie Colgan memory from Rolling Rock? I, I, I don't <laughs> think we can talk about some of those. But, yeah, no, I have a lot of we We... Uh, Rolling Rock, because you were there, I was there. It was a special. Anybody that was ever went to Rolling Rock never forgot it. Charlie loved Rolling Rock. Charlie was actually in charge of the the uh, housing. That was one of his job, non racing type jobs. But it was uh, uh, it was an interesting uh, movement of people. There was a kind of a pecking order, and and owners and trainers are very conscious of where they were staying. They wanted to stay at the club, and obviously we had a, it was it was overfilled, and some. We're on the AE and had to go downtown and Ligonier and stay at other hotels and everything. But he, uh, we all, we, we all look forward to, we went out there for a week and uh, we'd we spend the week there and, and, and had a, a grand old time. It was great racing. We raced on Wednesday. I've told you this story many times before, but we, we would race on Wednesday and literally right after there was a cocktail party and there was a lot of cocktail parties at Rolling Rock. But at the cocktail party, I'd sit at the front door and literally take entries for the Saturday program. <laughs> it was, and, and I spent most of the night getting those entries organized and we, we did it together and Charlie was you know had other responsibilities at that time so I, I kind of did the racing part and he did most of the social part but great time great memories and uh, it was truly I, I, I'm sure if it wasn't Southern Pines which was uh, you know the home of the Stony Brook Steeplechase which was his father-in-law Michael G. Walsh started that he married Audrey Walsh that's probably was the closest to his heart and his, his best but Rolling Rock would have been a close second. Yeah, for sure. I've I've heard the entries the entries taking stories a few times, which uh, today would be unheard of. Uh, you would you'd need a computer and all this other stuff, and actually, it was with less technology, you pulled it off. You know, it was literally what we call a cut book in those days, and it was literally me on the phone dictating the silks and the weight and the and the breeding of the horses, and it it was pretty primitive, but. Believe it or not, somehow we got it done. Which is <laughs> great. And uh, yeah, that's what you end up doing is looking back and stuff like that. And uh, a guy like that that we missed had a big impact in the game. And, and when you think about it, there's not many in your job. There haven't been that many people. I mean, Jack Cooper was there for a long time. Charlie succeeded him. You succeeded Charlie. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it spanned the better part of, I don't know, 80 years, 75 years, something like that. Well, I mean, around 40. So, But if you add <laughs> us all up, yeah, it's it's it was a good it was a good chunk. I, I will say this about Charlie. He is... He he was, or he's still current in my mind, but I've told many, anyone that I ever talked about Charlie Colgan, he was the smartest person I've ever been around. I'm incredibly intelligent, very well read, had multifaceted, a lot of interest. He had a law degree, uh, didn't practice law. Uh, if he did, a very short time in North Carolina. I uh, had a passion for sports, which was linked us, was, was a native New Yorker, once again, linked us. So we, we had some things in common, but he was incredibly, incredibly bright, well, gifted writer, gifted public speaker, very articulate. He could bring a meeting. He conducted a meeting, our board meetings, and he was pretty much in charge of those and did a wonderful job explaining things. A tremendous storyteller. He would sing from time to time. 
He was a really interesting, well-rounded guy, a good guy. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's fun to look back on. Yeah, sad, sad but also kind of fun to look back on. And um, uh, so you, you've been there. You've been with the NSA since '77. You've obviously seen plenty of good horses. You got uh, you got a few favorites. Who's your Who's your all-time favorite horse? Leaping Frog. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I just always enjoyed that horse. You know, he wasn't the top top horse. He was actually a very small horse. A very brave horse. He raced in the late 70s, early 80s. My, the, the best horse I've been around. There were two great horses, Flatter and Lonesome Glory. You, it's a coin flip. You know, I, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't say one was better than the other. I would say they were equal, equally great. And they were both great. Flatter had an incredible history of carrying high weights. It was remarkable. What The weight had no effect on that horse, none. I've, I, I saw the horse give 30, 40 pounds away and it won a race at Radnor. And I'll never forget it as he crossed the finish line. Few steps past the wire, Fishback won easily, and Fishback jumped off the horse. Jerry Fishback was riding him at the time, but it was, you know, it was just kind of startling to watch, and, and you know, it was sort of Fishback's way of saying he's got too much weight on him, getting off him right away. But he was the weight carrier. Lonesome Glory was a clutch horse. He could perform at the right time, and he, you know, he had a terrific career. So I, I wouldn't split in hairs trying to decide who's the best, but I'd say those are absolutely during my career, those are the best two by far. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and uh, Flatter won with 178 pounds, which is a, a record, you know. And and uh, I remember my my father's horse Gogong beat him once, carrying maybe one with 176, and my father's horse beat him carrying 178. And my my dad was all he could talk about was how he felt bad for Flatter. I was 20, less than 20, 18, 19 at the time, and uh, I couldn't really care about him. all we did. We beat him, but now you look back on it, and you're like, yeah, that horse he. He delivered those races no matter what, you know, which was that—that that was the impressive part. And it's always hard to compare eras, but yeah, I mean, if he was the horse of the of the '80s, and Lonesome Glory was the horse of the '90s into the 2000s a little bit, and and uh, Lonesome Glory to me, like you said, was clutch. He won when we went to Churchill Downs. He won when we went to Keeneland. He won at Saratoga. He, you know, he went to England and won. You know, and it just delivered these performances and I, I watched the he won at Churchill Downs which obviously does not have a big history of steeplechasing but I watched the race with John Asher who's you know a longtime employee of Churchill Downs and just how blown away he was at their performance you know and, and that was the reach and the power of that horse which was really cool to be a part of yeah he uh, you know I think alone some glory too you think of the connections of course Bill Pape owned owned uh, owned Flatter but Mrs. Jeffords I have very fond memories of Mrs. Jefferts, and you know she was a real sport. And the horse took the horse to England to Cheltenham. He won at Cheltenham. Was I, I went there on that trip, and um, a business trip turned into a social trip as well with uh, Mrs. Jefferts and Miss Diamond. It was uh, some great, great memories because uh, that was a clutch performance. I'm, the horse was a fourth choice, I think, in a four-horse field, and Blythe Miller rode, rode him and uh, rode a terrific stretch and just got up. Uh, and it was miraculous what that horse did in, in England. Yeah, just unheard of for an American jumper to go over there and win. Flatterer went and ran very well. It was second in France, second in England, and that's always the yardstick for these American horses. And uh, to see them go over there and perform really well, uh, it says something about the quality of them. And we're not going to leave out Leaping Frog, owned by <laughs> Phyllis Wyeth of uh, Chad's Ford Stable, who went on to uh, have Union Rags and uh, trained by Jonathan Shepard. And uh, what 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 connects you to him? He was a, he was kind of like the underdog in the Shepherd Barn, and that's exactly what what it was. He was kind of overlooked. I, th I thought he should have won an Eclipse Award one year, and you know, Flatter ended up getting it. He had a really good year, but he was always the underdog, and that's what. I, and he was a, a smallish horse, and so I kind of liked him. How can you not like the name? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, when you're not, uh, I know you're on the golf course some, you're following Villanova basketball. What else are you doing when you're not uh, going racing? 
No, I follow Villanova basketball exclusively, <laughs> we, and we are number one in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we are playing in George at Georgetown tomorrow night. But yeah, no, I mean those are my passions. You know, horse racing, golf, and not necessarily in this order, but horse racing and golf and 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 college basketball. I'm a Villanova graduate, and I was a basketball player, not at the college level, but as an alumni, it's a lot of fun to watch, particularly when you have a really really good team. We, you know, we won a couple of national championships, and it's all good. My golf game isn't that good anymore, but <laughs> it used to be pretty good. <laughs> All right, well, perfect. We'll uh, we'll see you on the circuit, and uh, again, uh, Aiken kicks things off in March, and uh, the the horses will be running in no time. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks. Jumping Around is a production of ThisIsHorseRacing.com, a source for original content about thoroughbred racing from the Steeplechase Circuit, Fair Hill, Saratoga, the Mid Atlantic, and more. This edition was recorded and produced at Howling Wolf Recording Studio in Baltimore, Maryland. Special thanks to Charlie Fenwick, our listeners and guests. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes by searching for This Is Horse Racing.